3: Visit LiveNation.com concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul. Sum 41, 30 seconds from Mars. Oh, and two-door cinema club.
4: Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just eight ninety seven at The Home Depot. How doers get more done.
0: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
1: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor.
0: And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu.
1: Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hey guys, it's Sal. We're pumped to get you guys to this week's show. We've a great guest coming on. He's got an incredible amount of insight, really unique insight on the top three picks in this year's NFL draft. And we'll talk about the whole class with him too. Instead of the takeaways this week, I'm going to give you guys kind of five things that I really liked that teams did in this year's draft. And of course, as always, we'll get to all of your questions in a six-pack. Let's go. All right, welcome in. It's the MMQB podcast with Albert Breer. We are past the draft now. We are into sort of what's normally the slow time of the NFL calendar where we're talking about OTAs and mini camps and off-season programs and all this stuff. And the truth is... It's actually going to be slower than in any other year because teams can't have traditional offseason programs. So they're doing their virtual offseason programs. The NFL's news over the next few weeks should slow almost to a halt. There's an owner's meeting in a couple of weeks um in Los Angeles. We'll see if that goes off. But if it doesn't, you know, things are gonna be pretty slow until training camp. But if you're a huge NFL fan, we'll have you covered here all the way through. I can promise you that. And so this is going to be our big big draft wrap-up show. I I got a great guest coming in. He's going to break down in a very unique way the top three picks in the draft. He's got really, really intimate knowledge of the top three picks of the draft. And then we're going to sort of discuss some team-building philosophy with him, and he's going to give you what he liked, what he didn't like about the NFL draft. Um, we're gonna get to you all your questions in the in the in the six pack like we normally do, but I want to pick things off here by doing this a little bit differently. And one of the things that I haven't done that I know a lot of people do over the last few years is draft grades. And it's not because I'm totally against it. I understand why people like them. I I think they're they can create a good discussion point, all the rest of that. You know, I I think more than anything else, it's just. I think they can give you guys a little bit of context in in, in in who 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 did well from a value standpoint and all the rest of it. And so I'm not gonna sit here and give you draft grades for the thirty-two teams, but instead of the five takeaways this week, I thought I'd give you five teams that I thought did well. And I'm not a scout, so I'm not gonna sit here and tell you that 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 I'm breaking down, you know, how Chase Young comes off the off the edge or c j. Henderson's tackling, or Jerry Judy's you know ability to to handle press coverage. I'm not doing that. What I am doing is telling you who I think got bit good value based on where they were picked, based on what I'd heard, based on all of the information that I've gathered over the last three or four months, and maybe a little of my own analysis sprinkled in there. So I'm going to give you guys five teams before we get to our guest that I thought did well in the 2020 NFL draft. Our guest is going to give you a, a team he thought did well too, which is different than the ones that I'm going to name here. Okay and this is in no particular order, just five teams that I thought did well based on where they were drafting, where they took guys, their needs, everything else. Number one, and this might surprise some people, the New York Giants I thought did really well. And a big part of it is their first-round pick. They took Andrew Thomas fourth overall. Now part of the background for me here is the fact that you know When you started to talk about the, the the offensive tackles to scouts and to coaches and the top four guys, Mekhi Becton, Tristan Wirfs, Jedrick Wills, and Andrew Thomas, it just kind of kept coming back to me that Thomas was the one you couldn't poke holes in, right? And so I started to ask this question over the last maybe week leading up to the draft. Why isn't he the first one to go? Because most people, myself included, had other people going first, whether it was Wills, whether it was Worfs, whether it was Becton. Know, but you could poke holes in the other guys. With Wills and Werfs, it was what position are they going to play? With Beckton, it was sort of an issue of motivation and why is he? Why wasn't he more consistent on tape? And can he keep the weight off? With Thomas, it's just, it's yeah, just a very clean prospect. And so they get him at fourth overall, which I thought was a logical move. They get Xavier McKinney, a guy I thought was going to go much higher with a 36 pick. In the third round, they get Matt Parrott, who some people believe can be a starting tackle out of UConn. Um, In the fourth round, they get Darnay Holmes, a nickel corner out of out out of out of UCLA who has a very specific role but at that stage in the draft you can draft guys for very specific roles he can be a a a nice slot corner for you and then cam brown a, a, a pass rusher with some upside from penn state later on and so i like their class as a whole i like the fact that joe judge and i wrote about this on monday has so many connections with so many of these guys it's a very patriot thing to do to sort of tap into your connections and you look at the top of the draft Andrew Thomas, well, he worked, Well, Joe Judge worked with Kirby Smart at Alabama. Xavier McKinney played for Joe Judge's old boss, Nick Saban, at Alabama. Uh, Darnay Holmes, Matt Parrott, they come from programs in UConn and UCLA that have Patriot connections with Randy Etzel and Chip Kelly in charge. Cam Brown, well, you know, his defensive line coach at Penn State – uh, Sean Spencer is actually is actually the new defensive line coach of the Giants under Joe Judge. And so I think there's a lot of logic to their picks. I thought they got good value where they were. The, the, my, my second team on the list is not going to surprise anybody. That's the Baltimore Ravens. And, you know, you just sort of look at what they did. Getting Patrick Queen without having to move was a huge win for them. I know they had Queen and and Murray and Kenneth Murray kind of ranked right next to each other. So they get Queen five picks lower than Murray goes. I think if they had the choice of the two, it would have been really, really close. My guess is they would have taken Queen, but it was super close. So to not have to move to get Patrick Queen I thought was a win. To get J.K. Dobbins in the second round, a guy who just 100% fits the personality of the Ravens, that made sense. Devin Duvernay, another burner to put out there with Hollywood Brown, you want those sorts of players when you've got Lamar Jackson, because that'll help loosen the box up. Um, if teams have to account for what you're able to do downfield, having burners like DuVernay and Hollywood, you know, that really kind of creates that can help create space in the running game, which obviously can help an offense that's built the way the Ravens are. You draft two guards later on and that's, you know, starting to address the, the hole that's going to be left by Marshall Yonda by putting a couple of guys in the, in the pipeline. And then one of the guys that was sort of a draft sleeper, Geno Stone, the i the Iowa safety, you get him in the seventh round. And so I thought the Ravens did really well end to end. And again, like the Ravens are sort of the team that I everything's done with logic. Like last year, the guys they drafted, it was draft they they were drafted to play in the Ravens' offense. They were drafted to play the way the Ravens want to play. And you know, it's just every year you look at what the Ravens do, and. Uh, You can explain to a 10-year-old why they did what they did. It's all very, very logical. Uh, Team number three, the Dallas Cowboys. And for one reason or another, I don't think the Cowboys get enough credit for how well they've drafted. Um, And Jerry Jones deserves credit. Steven Jones deserves credit. Will McClay, their their vice president of player personnel, deserves a lot of credit. Um, And he's, in a lot of ways, sort of does – GM type things like he's he, he has the function of the GM in a lot of ways in the Cowboys organization. There's a reason why their roster is so talented. And again, I don't know why they don't get credit for this, but they've they've drafted well over the years. If you look, there are very few misses in the first round. They built that offensive line through the first round. Um, they've just done a good job in general. And I look at this year's draft and you see value all over the place, right? Um, you see C D Lamb, of course, with the 17th overall pick, great value. There wasn't a need, but they adjust as they need to. I think they may have taken Caleb Von Chase on or Xavier McKinney there at 17 if they hadn't taken Lamb, but they go ahead and they take Lamb because he's the best player there. Trayvon Diggs addresses a need in the second round. Great value to get him where you got him. Uh, Neville Gav- Gallimore, a defensive tackle who's got some upside who you can sort of put in the pipeline, and he can develop some of the uh, – Behind some of the younger guys that you have. And then to to go and get uh Tyler Biotish and Bradley Ani later on, I thought was great value. Biotish has a chance, I think, to be your starting center. And Ani, he'll at least compete with Connor McGovern for that. And Ani, I think, has got like some upside as as a pass rusher, maybe could be a designated pass rusher down the line. So I like what Dallas did. The Bengals, my fourth team. And again, this is a this is maybe a team you wouldn't expect to see there but i just look at their first four picks and god i think all four of those guys have a chance to play right away uh joe burrow for obvious reasons could be their starting quarterback week 1 uh t higgins you know a guy who i think gives you another player opposite aj green and like kind of does a little bit more to help your young quarterback he had some bigger receivers in jamar chase and and jordan and and justin jefferson At LSU kind of gives him a little bit of a comfort zone there and Higgins I think is an important one too because you've got two guys and John Ross and AJ Green going into contract years so you have somebody in the pipeline in case you lose one of those guys next year Logan Wilson was a guy who a lot of evaluators talked to me about over the last couple of weeks that was sort of an under the radar guy who you know if you if you if you missed out on the first wave of linebackers um, Simmons, if you consider him a linebacker. And then of course, Patrick Queen, uh, Jordan Brooks and, and, uh, and Kenneth Murray, Logan Wilson was behind those guys, but maybe not as far behind those guys as some other people thought. And so to get him, I thought in the third round was, was good. And then you get another value pick in linebacker at linebacker in the fourth round. Again, this is one of those that like, you just, you sort of, Ignore need for a second, and it was a need, but you, but but you you ignore the fact that you're taking linebackers and back to back rounds, and you go in and get an Akeem Davis Gaither. Thought they did really well, the Bengals did, and then my fifth team, and we'll get to our guest right after that, after this, the Denver Broncos. I really liked how the Broncos sort of did things to support their young quarterback in very different ways. Okay, and so Jerry Judy, like, look, if this hits, if he stays healthy. I, like I've heard him compared to Marvin Harrison. So I really like that pick. And I think to get him 15th overall, you did really, really well because there were teams that were going to wait on receivers uh, because there's so much depth in this year's class. So there are teams, you know, in the top 20 picks that looked at it and said, well, we can kind of, you know, just wait and address our offensive tackle need or address our needs on defense. We'll take care of the receiver position a little later on. That caused guys like Judy and Lamb to slip a little bit. Where again, you take those guys in the middle of the first round, you're getting really good value. KJ Hamler, I think, would have gotten gone higher if the combine had been run as it normally is, because he's got just game-breaking ability, and I think he probably would have run, run like you know somewhere in the four threes, maybe even faster than that. Um, as it was, I think, you know, you get a guy who's like so, sort of like a Deshaun Jackson type of player. You add him to the mix. So now you got opposite the bigger receiver in Cortland Sutton, you've got two guys who can really run. And, and Judy is a great route runner. Hamler's more of your prototy- prototypical burner. So those guys all fit together. You bring in Albert O from Missouri and one of my favorite picks of the class, right? So you got Albert O. So, you can kind of work with him. Two versatile tight ends now with him and Fant. You got Hamler and Judy to go with Cortland Sutton. Lloyd Cushenberry, you invest in your offensive line, a guy who could wind up becoming your starting center um, or a starting guard for you. I really like just being able to get him where they got him. Uh, My one question with the Broncos is now what they do at left tackle. They haven't been happy with Garrett Bowles. Um, I. I guess right now, I mean, at one point in the last couple of weeks, he was actually on the block. I guess he just, like Elway said, you open up the competition. Um, but I, I, I like the, ultimately, like I think the one issue that I have is that the left tackle position remains sort of undone. That said, based on how the, how the board fell, the four top tackles were off the board by the time they got to 15. And I thought they did well to adjust and, and support their young quarterback um, in a very, very, very logical sort of way. All right. So you guys have got my five teams, the Giants, the Ravens, the Cowboys, the Bengals, and the Broncos. I think all did really well in this year's draft, and now we're going to get the opinion of our special guest right after this.
0: There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you?
4: Angie can even help with extremely specific projects. Just tell them what you need and Angie will find the right solution for you. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I or download the app today.
6: The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn
1: All right, we're going to welcome back in an old friend of mine, an old guest on the podcast, a guy I was interested to talk to this week just because he's got like really good connections to some guys who were drafted uh, high on Thursday. That is former first-round pick, uh, former Cowboy, former Ohio State Buckeye linebacker, and current uh, ESPN analyst and uh, host of Carpenter and Rothman. I think it's 97.1. Is that right? That is correct. I have it right. Okay, I still remember that um bobby carpenter welcome in
5: a pleasure albert thanks for having me
1: okay so let's start here because i i think part of it like i i put this connection together in my head because i know your dad's a coach and obviously joe burrow's dad's a coach and he played at ohio state and you guys are sort of from the same part of the state right um not too far off anyway um so i, I my, my first question is the same question i asked joe himself about you know two weeks ago which is are you surprised that you know he's the number one overall pick knowing everything that you've known about him over the last however many years?
5: Yeah, you know it's interesting. Like He's from about 45 minutes away from me. And there's not a lot of kids that come out of Athens High School. It's heavily rural. They, you know, they don't have really a rich talent base. And outside of Ohio University, there's not a whole lot there. And so he hit it right. They had some of the coaches' kids on his team. And I remember watching him in the state championship game. I'm like, this kid's very heady. He has a great eye for the game. He has great anticipation. But he wasn't a real big kid, and he didn't have the strongest arm in the world. And so because of that, it's like, you know, they offer him at Ohio State, and I'm like, I don't know. He seems like kind of a more of a mid-tier quarterback to me. Uh, But he was a pretty good athlete, and like maybe he can kind of grow into it. I think ultimately at Ohio State, their goal for him was to kind of be, you know, the backup uh, while they're bringing these five-star guys. And if one of them doesn't pan out, then he ultimately is the quarterback. And so I watched him develop, and after two and a half years, you saw a guy put on, I don't know, 15, 20 pounds. He looked bigger. His arm became stronger. And when he left Ohio State, some people believed like either he was good or Dwayne Haskins was good. And I'm like, there is the possibility that both of these guys are good players. (laughs) Like, Dwayne just has like a generational arm. When you watch him throw the ball, his quick release, it spins out, coming out really nice. He's very accurate, good anticipation. He was still learning the game. Joe knew a lot more about the game, and he was better with his eyes and a lot of things, but he obviously didn't have, you know, maybe some of the elite arm talent that Dwayne did. But to Joe's credit, he freaking worked at that thing, and he understands defenses probably better than any other quarterback, young quarterback I've ever been around. And you talked about his dad being a coach, and you know I grew up the son of a coach as well. But what's usually interesting, and it's funny because my dad was a running back and was more involved in the offensive side. Joe was a quarterback. His dad was a defensive coordinator. My brother played for him down at OU for you know five years down there and usually when you see the quarterback their dad's the head coach and the OC they're the play caller so they have a acute understanding of offense the thing that made joe unique is i think he understands what's going on the on the defensive side of the ball better than anyone else because of his dad and probably ask him why are they doing two, two safeties high right here? What, what is this safety showing there? What are they doing with this linebacker? And what's this combo coverage? How are you going to hide and disguise it? And so you watch him on the field like very rarely, Albert, does he ever get tricked. And I'll give Clemson a ton of credit. They had a great game plan. They were outmatched. For two series, they had him a little bit confused. And when he came out in the third series, he was locked in. He understood where they were cheating. And then it was just a boat race from there.
1: That's interesting, like, and I don't want to make this all about Joe, but like the, the whole thing, but like that's interesting because like, isn't it usually the last thing the quarterback gets, right? Like as they're learning and progressing, like, okay, like now I'm learning the offense. Now I'm learning like how to use this against the defense and that against the defense. And like I've always heard like the last thing for a quarterback at the NFL level to get is what the defense is trying to do to him, right? So he's almost working like ahead then, right, in a certain way.
5: Oh, absolutely. That's the case for kind of any player. Usually it's, you know, it's a defensive guy. It's like, what do I do and how do I do it? And then you begin to look at, okay, what are the offensive sets they're bringing? Look at splits where they're lining guys up and how they trying to attack because you always have to do your job before you can even worry about someone else's. But Joe, like, he, he, this famous quote, I, I don't know what who he was talking to. It might have been Marty McGee on uh, ESPN. And it's like the Joe Burrow is football quote. Like the dude lives it. Like I've never seen another guy who is that into what he does. Um, you know, you talk about like, the coach's kid, like they just grow up around the game. I mean, Joe's known his job since day one. It was just a matter of having the physical tools to be able to execute it, working into developing that. And then that's why at this point, like he was the guy that understood the defense as probably better than anyone because he was so much further along in his progression of understanding not just offensive football, but football in general.
1: You, you're around that program a lot. <laughs> And they were teammates in 2017. You played there. You obviously know the staff really well. Is it a stunner that there would be, like, when you looked at that team in 2017, one, two, three, three years later?
5: (laughs) I think Joe Burrow is the stunner. When he left, I'm thinking, this kid, (laughs) probably a third or fourth-round quarterback based upon his abilities. I didn't think that he was going to be able to do this and do what he did. So tremendous credit to him. Chase Young walking in the door, I thought the guy was a grad transfer. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I looked at him and Like I remember asking one of, a, one of a friend of mine who was a scout and we're sitting there talking. He goes, who is that guy? I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm like, he might be a grad transfer. And then Mark Pantone tells me, he's like, no, no, that's Chase Young. I'm like, that dude's a freshman, like 17, 18 years old. I'm like, He looks like Julius Peppers and he moves like a wideout." And so I saw that and I'm thinking like, okay, and I got a chance to get to know Chase over the years. Really great kid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had a conversation one time and I told him like, dude, you, you could be the Biggest turd in the world, and still probably be a first round draft pick based upon the ability that God gave you. If you want to work at this thing, dude, the ceiling for you is one of the best defensive players in the country, if not the best football player in the country, he has that type of gifts. And you know, so he comes from a good home. He's a hard worker. He had a great coach in Larry Johnson, who was able to, able to develop his skills, and he continued to work at it. And so that's why he has a he not only has an incredibly high ceiling, but he has an incredibly high floor. And you know that. Uh, Talking to this the same scout about this, you know. Then three years later, and he said the, the question was raised in their meeting. Would you be more surprised if Chase Young never has a double-digit sack season or breaks the single-season sack record? And he asked me that, and I, about fifteen-second pause, and like I would probably be more surprised if he never has a double-digit sack season. He goes, that was the consensus in our room after a lot of hemming and hawing. <laughs> like, you're going to tell me this kid. We'll never have 10 sacks. He's healthy. He's athletic. He has everything you want. He plays hard, plays tough. You'll tell me he never have 10. You're like, yeah, I would definitely probably have to bet on the other. So it's amazing. Like just how gifted he actually is. And then combined with his character.
1: Well, on chase then. So, and we'll get to Okuda in a second, but on chase then it like, so how would you say he stacks up with the Boses? Cause that's going to be the obvious comparison. And Nick had such a huge impact on what the Niners did last year and sort of I don't know. I think there's an interesting parallel there where you had all the first round picks in San Francisco in Eric Armstead and DeForest Buckner and Solomon Thomas and D Ford. And now Chase is going into a situation where Daron Payne, Jonathan Allen, Montez Sweat, and Ryan Kerrigan are there. Um how like do you how would you stack Chase Young up against Nick and Joey Bosa, seeing as though, you know, they all went in the same area of the draft, right? there in the top three. And they all came through the same program were taught the same way, sort of brought up in a similar way as college players.
5: You know, I think Nick and Joey are probably a little more polished just given the fact, you know, their dad and their family. And I think they'd been working on pass rush moves since they were probably like six years old. So those guys had a a firm understanding of it. And then I, and I don't want to say that saying that like chase is very raw, because that's not the case. You don't go that high, but they're probably the most advanced pass rushers I ever saw enter college. And then probably also leaving college. And then conversely, like, Chase is probably a little bit more fluid athlete than those guys. And just not to knock them, because you look at some of their 10-yard dashes, like they're close to receivers. Their get-off and explosion is tremendous. Their strength is tremendous. Chase is probably a little more fluid, has a little bit more in his hips, whereas they probably have a little bit better power. And so it's just just on the margins right there. And so Chase probably has a little higher upside, which is crazy to say, given the fact that you you could have made an argument for Nick being defensive player of the year this year. But I think they're going to kind of all be very similar. You know, and if you look at Joey, like the guy he has opposite in Melvin Ingram rushing, pass rushing on the opposite of him, like he has an elite player over there. You look at everybody in San Francisco. Then you look at the situation that Chase is going to in Washington. Being a great pass rusher is nice. Being a great pass rusher and having other elite pass rushers around you is even better because you're going to get doubles, but you can't get them every single time. And when you have a guy like Sweat who's got speed coming off the others, like they're gonna have to make decisions. And because of that, like that's only gonna foster more pressure. The teams are gonna have to change their offense. And I think he's gonna have a huge impact his rookie year because he's not going to be the focal point of that defensive line.
1: And it sounds like Okuda doesn't surprise you either. Like wouldn't have surprised you three years ago. Just because you said Joe was the shocker. Obviously you jump into Chase being obvious. I mean maybe Joe, maybe Okuda wasn't as obvious no, as he, Chase, but Close.
5: <laughs> he was. I mean, those two guys were, you know, yeah. elite, highly ranked guys coming in, you know, the lead mm-hmm. at their position. You throw Sean Wade in there, who will probably be who I, I fully anticipate being a first round corner taken next season. You know, maybe a top ten guy depending on how depending on how he plays. But Jeff Okuda, he has all the measurables. He's you know, six one, he's you know, two hundred five, two hundred ten pounds, you know, four four speed, really good ball skills, great guy. And so, you know, like he's been through a lot. His mother passed away from cancer. It's I think sixth day at Ohio state. Like he's a yes or no. So when you talk to those guys, Albert, you're around a lot of people like mm-hmm. you, they, they look you in the eye. Like they, they have something to them. And if you're a coaching you draft, right? Like, gosh, like we're, we're staking our franchise to this guy. Hopefully that they play well for four or five years so we can pay him a bunch of money. And when you pay a guy, a bunch of money in your locker room, like, you're going to get more of the type of behavior that that guy produces because that's the type of behavior that you're incentivizing. So, if you can marry that up where these guys are not only good players but great great human beings that work hard that are tacticians, like it's going to dramatically enhance the quality of your locker room. So, it doesn't surprise me that even though Detroit and Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia like they're trying to trade out of that pick, like Jeff Okuda is a like quote New England Patriot type guy with the way he conduct- conducts his business.
1: Yeah, and that's so interesting to say that because it's like I don't know. I've always thought about that. Like how, you know, it's like what Matt rule, right? Like, so Matt rule takes Derek Brown, um, you know, and I've heard a lot of coaches say this. So he takes Derek Brown at the seventh overall pick and for Matt rule, that's his first draft pick. And so, you know what I've always heard is like other guys in the locker room are going to watch, right? They're going to watch who's the mm-hmm. first guy you pay. The first guy he paid was Christian McCaffrey. They're going to watch the first guy you draft. The first guy he drafts is Derek Brown. Derek Brown, four year guy at Auburn, came back for his senior year. Good academically, really good guy. Performed when the spotlight was on him coming back. So that really—that's a real thing, then. Like like oh. you believe that's a real thing. Like, yeah. like, like 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 as a player in a locker room, you you're just sitting there. You watch. okay? New coach comes in. Who's he drafting with his first pick? Who's he paying? Like you're watching that?
5: Absolutely, and it's probably even more subconsciously than anything else. And so I, I was fortunate enough to go to Detroit after they had like three top three picks in a row with yeah. Stafford, uh, Calvin Johnson, and Dominic Sue. <laughs> Calvin Johnson, not only one of the best athletes, and I might say the best athlete I've ever been around. He has six five, you know, two forty, and runs a four four. Great human being, incredibly smart. Would do anything for anybody on the team. Not a me guy. Similar situation with Matt Stafford unbelievably talented, great guy in the locker room. Everybody absolutely loved him. He was beat up early in his career, but he didn't hang his head. He sticks around, you know, he fights through stuff. And like guys see that. And then not to take anything against Sue, like he's a great player. He's kind of aloof. He's kind of away from guys. And so like, he kind of stuck out like a sore sore thumb with that. And so you could see it. If he was the only guy up there, you might get more behavior like that. But because of those two guys, because of the fact that they br- brought and paid Nate Burleson to come in, Kyle Vandenbosch, Bosch like you had a really strong locker room there for a couple of seasons because of the type of guys you either drafted or paid because those that's the type of behavior essentially that
1: you're trying to promote within your team. So I hate to put it this way but like it's like it's like if you pay a shithead, it almost gives <laughs> somebody who has those tendencies the green light to act that way, right?
5: Oh, absolutely because those guys are going to act and do more of what they always wanted to do. Like, money doesn't change people. It only makes them more of what they always were. So the guys like teetering think, I got to be on my best behavior to get this contract. Once he gets it, he doesn't care anymore. And other guys are going to see that. And so, you know, maybe if he was coming in on time, but just right before the meetings, never late. But in the past, he'd always kind of been a little late or been edgy. Then all of a sudden he gets paid, dude. He's five minutes late every day. Other guys are going to see that and say, "Hey, why do I have to be on time? Like this dude's showing up late every day." And this is—they paid him. He's our premier offensive or defensive guy. And so some of the rookies begin to gravitate toward that. And it's really hard for the coach to then make an example out of the guy who's getting paid fifteen or twenty million a year.
1: You're the second person who's been in New England that's used that term. So it must go around there. Cause Troy Brown used to say that is uh, money only makes you more of what you already are. And so that probably it's like a big deal with the college kids too. Cause they're making nothing. So if they're acting that way when they're making nothing, then now all of a sudden you put some money in their pocket, they're going to be more of what they're, they're going to just can, their behavior is just going to be sort of enhanced. Oh yeah. Good or bad.
5: Especially yeah. like chase young, like coming in the season, people are like sit out, don't play the year. He, he made a choice. And this is one thing that's evident. Like, he didn't even have to come back after he was suspended. Yep. He was going to be a top 5 pick. Why come back and risk getting hurt? This guy wanted to come back and play football. And so, when you see a guy doing that, like that's not a guy who if you're, you know, 5 and 5 in the middle of the season, maybe two games out of the playoff race and has a, you know, a little nicked up ankle that you could play on, but you're not 100%, a lesser guy might sit out and you might have to convince him to play. Chase it's not even going to be a question.
1: Okay, I want like one last Ohio State question because I don't want to, people <laughs> to think we're turning this into a Booster Club meeting or something. Uh, I've had a lot of people there tell me it was really close between Joe and Dwayne. Do you buy it? 100%.
5: And I think it was probably even harder for Urban because Joe is a lot more of the Alex Smith type of quarterback, the JT Barrett with <laughs> a better arm, the guy who can run the ball. Like Dwayne didn't want to run. You see that now. Like yeah. He's a functional runner, but Joe... We love to use the term, like, sneaky good athlete. I mean, just because he's a white dude. But, like, (laughs) Joe can run, he's athletic, and he's actually tough. Like, he'll put his shoulder down, he'll get busted in the chin. You saw it in their bowl game a couple of years ago. Like I said, I think Joe was further along in his progressions than Dwayne was at that time just because he was older and he'd been around the game more. I think the only reason that they had to go with Dwayne, and I don't even know if they went with Dwayne. They just couldn't promise it to Joe. And if he didn't leave, it was a situation where it's now or never. But they had watched Dwayne come in against michigan the year before and the only reason he got that is because joe broke his hand in practice hitting it on a guy's helmet but he was came in and, and led that team to victory at the end so urban like could not unsee that and i completely understand going with the known quantity at that point
1: and you you believe in Dwayne? it sounds like i've, I've seen you stick up for Dwayne a little bit oh, on, you you really they think fired like, his he, coach
5: albert in the middle of the season <laughs> and he didn't even want him like they're setting him up for failure he struggles a little bit, but then the last four games of the season, I think he had the seventh-highest passer rating in the NFL. Oh, by the way, Trent Williams isn't playing, so you've got a turnstile left tackle. Terry McLaurin, your third-round draft pick, is your best receiver. You've got Adrian Peterson, who I love, but he's your running back. And the fact that this guy was out, I think he had five touchdowns and one interception, it was like pushing the ball down the field, not just taking the safe check down all the time. Like, Give the guys some help. Give them some protection. I think he can be a really good quarterback.
1: Okay, so let's go through the draft really quick before I let you go. Was there a pick that you really liked? Just a single player going to a single team that just sort of stuck out to you when you were watching on Thursday or Friday night or whenever where you were like, they got that one?
5: Gosh, I mean, I had one all set up. I was going to say Javon Kinlaw <laughs> to you know, South Carolina going out to San Francisco because you got a cheaper option replacing DeForest Buckner. Mm-hmm. Like, it all works out really well It's cap-wise, and it keeps them in their window. But you say that – and it just keeps bringing me back to like the CD Lamb with the Cowboys because I thought he was right there with Judy, better at some things than Judy. Judy might be better in certain areas, but a big physical guy similar to Dez Bryant, great contested ball catcher. Not the blazer, but you have that in Amari Cooper. Michael Gallup's really fast. And now all of a sudden, you're going to really find out what Dak Prescott is. Like, there's no room for him to hide because he's going to have a guy that can always win against one-on-one coverage and go make those catches that Dez Bryant used to be able to make.
1: That's going to be, I mean, I thought about that, like what it does. It's sort of like kind of adds to your investment in Amari Cooper, right? Like, because you invested all that money in Cooper. Now you got somebody to take the pressure off of him. It adds to your investment in in Dak, it makes all the sense in the world, especially when you consider he's going to be cheap pretty much for the life of Amari Cooper's guaranteed money. So it makes sense from that standpoint. Absolutely. All right. So is there a team that stuck out that you thought did really well?
5: You know, I thought the Minnesota Vikings did a pretty good job. Like, They traded away Diggs. You've got to find a a guy to replace him. I think you get a great value with Justin Jefferson there in the first round. Oh, and by the way, it's the same thing with what San Francisco did. You were able to manage your cap by getting cheaper and getting salary control. You needed some defensive backs. I thought they got good value throughout the course of their draft with defensive backs because when you have a lot of highly paid guys, you have to find a way to manage it. And so you've got to get cheaper, talented guys. And they did that kind of up and down, I thought, their draft roster.
1: Okay, and one pick that was just sort of a head scratcher, where you were like, kind of took you back a little bit.
5: So it's to me, it's it's the tandem of picks and the Philadelphia Eagles with what they did, you know, in the first and second round. You know, the fact that they go with Rager at twenty-one, you could have had Justin Jefferson right after if you want to go receiver. I just thought Rager, he's the speed. He's got some. He can go push the ball for you down the field. He's that vertical penetrator to open up Alshon Jeffrey. I get all that. But I didn't think that that's where you needed to go in the first round. You could have went with corner, or they really need some linebacker help. None of the inside backers are really off the board yet. You had Kenneth Murray, who goes the next pick, or two picks later, uh, to the L.A. Chargers. The Chargers yep. And I thought, like, he was a home run. He helped sure up that defense. Then in the second round, instead of taking Jalen Hurts, why don't you take Bims, or why don't you trade up to get K.J. Hamler and get that vertical penetrator there? And, like, that solves all of your problems and you're getting good value as opposed to taking a guy that I think you're reaching on in the first round and then taking Jalen Hurts in the second, which I think Jalen Hurts is a great project quarterback for somebody. He's probably good at the end of the second, top of the third round. If you have more of an aging starter, if you're Pittsburgh, and you think he could be the heir apparent to Ben Mm -hmm. Roethlisberger or something like that, I don't think he's the answer when you just paid Carson Wentz all that money, and now you're going to draft another young guy who's not as accurate? And just to maybe take Carson Wentz off the field, like I don't understand that.
1: That that's the see so you hit the part right there where I was just like thinking about like I've heard the Taysom Hill thing. And I think what people miss sometimes is like like Drew like lacks some of the ability to kind of threaten the defense in certain ways now, which is part of why the Saints are doing that, right? Like because okay, like how do we do something to create another threat? Okay, we'll we'll use Taysom Hill to create that threat. And he's not always playing quarterback either. They're moving him around and playing him at different spots. I just the the one thing that's hard for me to square with the Jalen Hurts thing, Bobby, is just like if you just paid your quarterback thirty four million dollars and now you drafted somebody to take him off the field. Like that—that's the part that you know. I don't know. That—that's the part that doesn't square for me. And Jalen Hurts, okay, he's he's a big guy. He's physical. He's pretty athletic but it's not like Carson
5: Wentz is a stiff like you yeah. move the pocket you can do all of those things you just don't want to run him all the time mm-hmm. but there's really nothing that Jalen Hurts gives you that you can't get out of Carson Wentz that's why I I just don't understand it if you had a an older guy who wasn't as mobile and you wanted to be able to do some different things all right like you mentioned New Orleans or if it was like a Pittsburgh situation like I understand all that I just don't I can't square like you said how you you fit him in there when you had so many other needs and you still feel like you're in a Super Bowl window
1: no question all right he's Bobby Carpenter you can get to him on Twitter and I wish I had your, give him your handle where B-carb they can three. find it okay bcarp3 at bcarp3 you can catch him on ESPN on get up and if you're in Columbus you can catch him on 97.1 the fan Bobby I always appreciate having you out
5: Robert thanks for having me on sir you do a great job
1: All right. Thanks again to Bobby. He's fantastic. It's been too long since we had him on. Um, Really appreciate him coming out. You guys know how we do the six pack. And this six pack is again in lieu of what we'd normally do uh, this, you know, at this point in the podcast, which, you know, we can't do because of everything going on in our country. Um, So, you know, we've gone back old school the last couple of months where we're doing the six pack instead of doing the mailbag. You guys know how the six pack works. Every. Tuesday on Twitter, I put out the call for questions. You ask. I pick six. If I pick yours, you get a like on Twitter. That means I hit that little heart and an answer here. Question number one This is from Jacob Wadmark. That's at Jacob underscore Wadmark. What's the logic behind the Packers drafting a quarterback with four years left on his contract and Rodgers showing no signs of quitting? Who made the call? Well, the call ultimately was made by general manager Brian Gutekunst, um, yeah, and he's the one who's got the hammer in that organization now. I, I, I understand what you're saying, Jacob. I, I think there are two things that you want to kind of take into account here that are important, okay? And this will explain the logic. I'm not saying I 100% agree with it, but this will explain the logic. Number one, if you believe there's a quarterback who has, say, even middle-of-the-first-round talent, and he starts falling to you, then you you have to think about if you're the Packers because you have Aaron Rodgers, which is going to put you in a position in all likelihood where you're not going to be drafting much higher than that for a little while. And so the opportunity comes along to draft that sort of quarterback and the same sort of opportunity came along in 2005 when the Packers drafted Rodgers. You have to start to consider that because chances are the Packers are going to have a hell of a time trying to get in position to draft, say, Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields in 2021 or whoever it might be in 2022. Chances are they're not going to be drafting high enough. So if you're not going to be drafting high enough and you see a guy at the most important position starting to slip to you and your quarterback's turning 37 this year, it has to at least be a discussion point. So that's what it was. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, the worst thing, the worst position you can be in is being pigeonholed into a single year, having to take a quarterback in that year or else. That's how Jake Locker goes where he did. That's how Christian Ponder goes where he did. If you ride it out with your starting quarterback until the wheels come off, that can be the position you're put in, where now all of a sudden it's, all right, our quarterback's gone, what do we do? You're, you're sitting there in the draft and all, and you have to kind of make that decision. And maybe subconsciously you start to push guys up because you know you have to fill that hole. Say so you overdraft a guy in that year. Well, you overdraft a guy in that year. You know what? Now you're signing him to a four-year deal with a fifth-year option. You're probably not taking one for another two or three years. So you can really cross up your franchise if you put yourself in that position where you're pigeonholed into a single year because there might not be a guy that year that you're in position to draft who is a franchise quarterback. And you can look through history and see all the different cases of teams sort of being in that position and really, really putting themselves in a tough spot long term. So I, I think it's once your quarterback, once your starting quarterback gets past, say, 35 years of age, I think every year you have to consider it. And the Packers, I think, are in that window now where they have to—they had to consider it again. They don't expect to be drafting that high again. So this guy, they really like, and I'm not a scalp. You know, there's a—it's definitely. I look, there's a definitely a lot of people who don't don't think he's didn't think he was a first-round quarterback. But if you do, then act with conviction and go and get him. The one other thing I would add here before we move on to the second question—I know this is a long answer. The Packers actually, the way they looked at their board. They had a question here, and you can read more about this in the Monday column. But the question here was, do we move up or do we stick? And if we stick, what do we do? Because as it was shaping up in the way they saw it, by the time it got to their pick at 30 all the guys that they valued at that level were gone. And so they were going to have to trade down. And if you can't trade down, which this year it was tougher to trade down, now all of a sudden you're stuck taking a guy who maybe you have a second round grade on. And so I think that piece of it was an important piece of it too, where it's just, all right, like we either get stuck at 30 and maybe we're taking a player that we're not wild about at that spot, or we move up and get a quarterback that we really like. Okay, question number two from Did the Spurs win? That's at Coleman Swarek. Uh Who signs first, Cam or Dalton? I don't think you can compare them right now because Cam's a free agent and Dalton's still under contract. And so, basically, any team trading for Andy Dalton right now, I think, his number is sixteen million, is also looking at bringing in a sixteen million dollar number if he's released. Say he's released this week. Let's say let's say that happens. Now all of a sudden they're on even footing where the money is sort of becomes a moving target and it becomes easier to sign a guy like that. I've had my radar up for the Jaguars with Dalton. The Jaguars need depth of the position. Dalton has experience with Jay Gruden. He could be a resource to Gardner Minshew, but they haven't shown a ton of interest in trading for, for, for Dalton. Now here's where it comes into play would they be interested in signing Dalton for 3 or $4 million? Maybe they would because that's different than trading a draft pick away for him and and inheriting a $16 million number. And so, you know, I think the context on Dalton changes a lot when he's released, if he's released, Um, whereas with Cam, we've already seen that context change. And the reality for both those guys is right now, there just aren't open starting jobs. And so part of this is going to be a willingness to go into a place where, you know, maybe you're either a backup or the starters on shaky ground and maybe you're you become the insurance policy like Ryan Tannehill did last year. Both these guys are sort of in that sort of spot. Question number three is from Justin Mason. That's at MasonJT twenty four. Will the Panthers hire a new GM or assistant GM? Hashtag keep pounding. Justin, I can go on what I can go on what uh what Dave Tepper, their owner, told me in December, which was the plan all along has been to hire Either like a sort of VP of player personnel, assistant GM type. There are some interesting names out there that could be moving around because this is the time of year that people move uh, from place to place in the scouting community. I do think the Panthers are going to make scouting hires. I don't know at what level. Um, there have been, of course, rumors that Marty Hurney could eventually move on. I what I would tell you about that. What I would tell you about that right there is. I think what will eventually happen, whether it's this year or next year, and it's a little hard to hire someone right now because of everything going on in our country, I I, I think the way it will be set up is the Panthers will probably hire an assistant GM, and then they will probably have Marty Herney stay on, and there will be a succession plan in place. Or maybe they hire a new GM, and maybe this is after this year, maybe they just wait, And Herney maybe stays on as a senior advisor. I think there's like an interesting way you can do that where you can sort of set it up. So you have Herney as a resource to whoever the next guy is going to be, whether it's mentoring him or just advising him after he's replaced. And then you bring in a guy who's sort of at the top of the scouting scouting, uh, org chart that is going to be sort of lined up. With Matt Rule. Question number four from Ryan Hoving. That's at dolphin underscore Spartan. Thoughts on which QB taken in the draft will have the best long term career? So here's the thing, Ryan. I think what's so interesting about that question is that so much of it is sort of dependent on environment. And if one of the most interesting things, I think you look at the three guys who've had second year breakouts, like the huge second year breakouts over the last few years Carson Wentz in Philly, Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City. Lamar Jackson in Baltimore. All three of those guys went to very stable franchises. All three of those guys, if you look, are playing behind very good tackles. And I know that sounds like a specific thing, but very good tackles. Jason Peters and Lane Johnson in Philly. Eric Fisher and Mitch Schwartz in Kansas City. And then Ronnie Stanley and Orlando Brown in Baltimore. All three of those guys had the benefit of good coaching, right? So Carson Wentz. Doug Peterson, Frank Reich, John D. Filippo, his first couple of years in the league. Of course, Patrick Mahomes has Andy Reid. He had Matt Nagy his first year. He's had Eric B. Enemy since. And then, you know, in Baltimore, Lamar Jackson not only gets a really good head coach, an accomplished Super Bowl champion, head coach in John Harbaugh, he also gets Greg Roman, one of the most accomplished coordinators in the NFL and a guy who knows how to build an offense for him. So so much of the answer to your question, Ryan, is going to hinge on who has the best infrastructure around him? And so right now you look at it. So Burrow goes to the Bengals, Herbert goes to the Chargers, you have Tuck Aloha going to the Dolphins and you have you have uh, you have Love going to the Packers. All four of those guys are going to relatively young head coaching st- head coaches with relatively new staffs. Anthony Lynn going into year four. Zach Taylor going into year two. Brian Flores going into year two. Matt LaFleur going into year two. So a big piece of this is going to be sort of what those guys show themselves to be as head coaches over the long haul. The staff around them. And I know I'm copping out of this because I'm not really answering it. But I think so much of it's going to depend on what's around them. Question number five is from Joe. It's at Joe DW underscore should the NFL scrap all international series games this year in the wake of potentially delaying the season by a month? Joe is a good question. It's one that the league is looking into. I certainly think, I certainly think it's going to be hard for the NFL to be sending teams to Mexico and to the United Kingdom in the fall. Um, based on the potential for resurgence of the coronavirus. Maybe it happens, I don't know. I know the NFL's tried to put a brave face in this. It's just so hard for me to imagine a scenario where we're gonna be all good to the level where you're okay sending teams overseas or into Mexico um, that soon. Again, I might be wrong, and it it may look completely different in September. It might look completely normal in September and October, but just based on what I've read and everything else, it sounds to me like it'd be pretty difficult to be playing international series games, especially when you consider how the NFL likes to turn those games into festivals and the gathering of people and the the, the just the atmosphere, all of that different stuff is such a big part of what they're doing over there. If you take that benefit of it away, I think that it's probably a little less, a little less attractive for the NFL to go over there. Finally, question number six. This is from Tiber. That's at Tiber underscore UK. And I'm going to make fun of myself here. Found anybody who likes – Tua in Miami yet, so I'll give you the backstory here. I went on the Rich Eisen show last week, and I said I just couldn't find anybody in Miami. I, I couldn't find anybody in the NFL who thought the Dolphins were taking Tua, and it's true. I made, and you guys know how I do this. I I make hundreds of phone calls in the weeks leading up to the draft. I'm I'm text messaging. I'm doing all that stuff all month. I'm trying to accumulate the best information I possibly can so you guys can have a better product when we go on the pod, when we do our periscopes, when you're reading on the site. And, you know, sometimes there are things, there, there are teams that are able to put up really good smoke screens. So credit to Brian Flores. Credit to Chris Greer. They put up one hell of a smokescreen. To me, this was uh, comparable to Jacksonville in 2014. And I'm not drawing this comparison to it to Bortles. But no one thought the Jaguars were taking a quarterback in 2014. Lo and behold, they wind up taking Bortles with the third overall pick. I remember thinking going into that draft day, Bortles might fall to 20 to the Cardinals. Well, he didn't. He went third overall to Jacksonville. And this is sort of similar to that where, you know, most NFL people I talked to thought the Dolphins were out on Tua. That was the buzz going around. And that with them it would be either Justin Herbert or it would be a tackle and Jordan Love. And then Tua probably falls to the Chargers and the Chargers would take Tua. So that's the way I had it. I had the Chargers taking Tua at six. I had the Dolphins taking Herbert at five. I was not correct about that. And credit again to the Miami brass for getting one over on all of us. Appreciate you guys coming out as always. Listen to all of our podcasts, my podcast, the Monday morning podcast with Gary. Andy Benoit has been doing a good job on there too. our old buddy. Uh, the Weekside Podcast with Connor and Jenny. We're all on one feed now, so you guys can get all of us on the MMQB NFL Podcast feed. You can also get the MMQB NFL News, the, the MMQB News feed on there. Just two separate clicks. Get you everything that you need to hear from all of us at the MMQB. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you guys get your shows. We're there next week, same time. See you guys then.
3: Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars. Oh, and two-door
0: cinema club. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. Pick up, pick up. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash with
3: with Zumo Play.